Welcome back to the next part of this Truth and Rhythm episode. Be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. Also become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you so much for your interest and support. Enjoy. So I see in like Discogs, your first credit shows as being um, too black, too strong. Yes. Yeah, that was recorded at Planet Sounds. I was just a guy coming in making a recording, and he's like, "Yo, I need some guitar on this," and so, and that was my first credit. So, yep, that and happens. So many things I haven't been credited for, unfortunately, that I've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can talk, hopefully, uh, illuminate some of those as we're talking. But um, did did you move straight from that to Kid Creole, or was there some stuff in between? Funny enough, again, this studio is so important to my story. Kid Creole used that studio. He made many of his albums there. Um, there's even promo photos of him and the band that were taken in front of the studio. So uh, there's one album of his. Actually... It's not a Kid Creole album, but he put out a something on Strut Records a few years ago. It was, I think, it's just called Kid Creole or something, or August Darnell or something like that. But the inner pictures is a picture of the band in front of Planet Sound, actually, on the CD. So, um, I met him there. He was recording. I was in my room recording, and he was like, "Hey." You sound pretty good. You want to come put some guitar down on this track? So I went and did it. And then he realized I could sing as well. And shortly after that, he comes up to me in the hallway one day and he's like, you like blonde girls? <laughs> I was like, I guess. He's like, I'm going to take you to Denmark. You're going to lose your mind. And I was like, okay. And so... Next thing I know, arrangements were made for me to go start playing with the band. But my initial thing wasn't being in the band. He was trying to help John to uh, get me out there. And he felt that Europe may be more open to what I do than America, like in his own case. And so... When I would go over to do these first shows, this was 92. Um, it was, there was a segment of the show for me. Like it was like 20 minutes or so 
in the middle of his set, he would introduce me from New York City. We've got Mark Anthony Jones. And so I was singing the songs I was recording in the studio back in New York. And that's how our relationship was for the first two, three years. He was taking a sort of manager, co-managerial position. So what what was your familiarity with the history of that group, uh, if any? And what was your first impression of August? Wow. Um, well, I had the only thing I knew about Kid Creole and the Coconuts was whatever I would see occasionally in magazines. I would read about Michael and Prince. You'd see some character in a big hat with some girls. And, you know, I noticed it. That's different. But there were no hit songs, really, that I could relate it to. So I think in my Prince books, often there would be little quotes about how he had written this song called The Sex of It for Kid Creole and the Coconuts. And that's really all I knew. I knew that they were loosely connected to Prince somehow. So that was about it. I definitely learned quite a bit more because <laughs> uh, I speak to him very regularly. Well, early on last the night, last night, in fact, early on, what was your impression of him? Did you feel like he was, you know, easy to, you know, talk I with? What, like, was he kind of eccentric? Feel, you know, what, what was he like? Um, well, you'd have to clarify that. Is that musically as a, persona himself or but both both his uh personality and his tone okay wow wow i mean i know him so well now that it's it's very hard for me to go back to what i thought i guess i thought at the time he's someone i was young so i didn't know all that that entails but my manager john he used to always be like Oh, he's he's selling out over in Europe. He's like huge. And so I knew that. But I'm a New Yorker, so I you know, I okay. And uh I didn't have any real feeling about Europe or him because I never really heard the music. You know, so uh, as you know, it wasn't big in America on the radio and stuff like that. So it was just a colorful guy who dressed nice and had lots of women around all the time. Lots and lots of women around all the time. And uh, lots of kids around all the time. And um, I just remember looking at him and saying, wow, I'd like to have a pretty wife like that one day or you know it was kind of like an, an admiration for his uh the way he carried himself i guess you could say you know i i definitely noticed that this is a man who never comes in looking average he's always got a look going for himself but um yeah i it's i was young i was young so I can't really say too much more. Um, eventually, I grew to really appreciate his 
talent and his knowledge, his, his, his knowledge of history of music. So our relationship today is, it's probably more than about his music or my music or doing gigs. And it's more just like, look at this thing that just came on YouTube with James Brown or like, oh my God, look at this. Or, like we, we geek out quite a bit with each other, sending videos back and forth and um, stuff like that. You know, I sent him your video or the one you did with uh, Eric Leeds and uh, his, his response was something like, justice is served or something mm -hmm. like that. You know, he was happy to see somebody, uh, I guess, admitting that Prince didn't just come out of nowhere with all of this, but there, there were definitely influences going on. So, so we're, we're both fans. I, th I think we're both music fans, very similar in that way. Like a lot of the people he loves are amongst my favorite people too. Like Sly Stone, Jimi Hendrix, uh, Marvin Gaye. Um, there's a few. There's a few. And plus, I learn a lot from him as well, just about things that I may have not necessarily been into that he, that touched him, you know? So, yeah, I've learned a lot from him. I, it's, I could go on and on and on, but many of the things I do every day when I'm working on my music or working for others are things that I've learned from him. Just uh, things you pick up being in the studio with, with someone and seeing how they approach this or that. You know, I, I borrow lots of his August Darnellisms in my own work. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Mark, in the case of somebody like him, you know, uh, if you don't have an opportunity to dig in a little bit, you just maybe see the image and persona, and maybe that's all that registers. Mm. But he's actually a very talented guy, you know? He's super bad. He's yeah. super bad. And his brother, Stoney, is the person that he gives the credit to as the real music guy in the family. Stoney put together Dr. Buzzard's original Savannah band. And he was the guy you often see playing at the keyboard and with a Applejack hat on. And that was like, from what I gather from August, Kid Creole, that was what got him in the business. That's his brother kind of pulled him along. Like, you're going to play bass. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. But his brother from what I hear, was heavy duty, you know? So unfortunately, as with so many musicians, he had some personal problems and demons that didn't allow him to uh, fully do all he was supposed to have done. But I think that's a lot of where August got his things from from his brother older brother stony mm. mm. how uh nervous were you if at all when you first got up on stage you know overseas and started no. you know, i wasn't yourself? nervous at all there was no nervousness in me i 
I was well seasoned as a performer. I had my own bands in New York, done tons of showcases, uh, been on big stages. So when I got to Europe, it actually was really freeing for me. Like, wow, none of these people know me. They don't know my history. I could do anything right now. And and I did, you know, whether it was splits or whatever else, whatever else I wanted to do, crawling around on the floor, just I, I was going for it. And uh, during that first tour, first tours that I did with Kid Creole, um, Lenny Kravitz was just really starting to take off, especially in Europe. So a lot of the shows we were doing were in France, that first tour. In fact, we lived in France. We had a, apartments. Each one of us had our own apartments in this apartment hotel. And so we basically would go do gigs, but then always come back to France, Paris, to this place. So that happened for like six months. I used to spend all of my days when I wasn't doing gigs, going to Jim Morrison's cemetery to by his gravesite and sitting out there with all the hippies. This is right around the time when that Oliver Stone movie came out too with the, I think it's Oliver Stone with Val Kilmer. So it was a big Oh, the Doors door. movie, yeah. Yeah, it was a big Doors revival. You'd have hundreds of fans out there like at the grave and I would be there with my guitar and you know. So uh where was I? Sorry. So no, I I felt very much appreciated. Even if it was just like a little slither of Lenny's fan base that I had, I too was very 70s influenced. So I was walking around in my bell bottoms and, you know, very often you'd hear French men sitting at some cafe, Lenny, Lenny. <laughs> but um, yeah, because whatever I was doing was, happening at that moment i felt very confident about doing it so you know and um that's what gave me a love of europe i just loved so much uh, i don't want to say the wrong thing but i've never been down too much with the whole hip-hop world and uh none of that kind of thing which is very prominent in the music, American music, black scene. It was very freeing to get away from any of that kind of stuff because that's just not the world I come from. So Yeah, well, black bands just kind of started disappearing, you know, by the time the 90s oh, rolled around. Don't even talk about it. Either they were disappearing or they were corny, in my opinion, uh, versions of something ish like what it used to be with some dudes who look like they play in a church well i won't get too deep into it i have very strong opinions but yeah no that's cool in, um, yeah there yeah so lenny was a was one of the only people at that time you could point to who was actually playing an instrument 
doing what I guess would be considered real music, you know, and um, so it was a good time. It was a good time to 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 start experiencing the world. Hmm? So did you uh, pick uh, August Sprain about having, you know, done that Prince track and that connection? Oh, uh, Prince is not a big topic in the August Darnell world. Like there's been many sound checks where because of the effects that I use and things, like there's certain things that I check on the guitar to just make sure my effects are sounding right. And so one of them happens to be a sound very similar to Purple Rain. So I just happen to strum the intro chords. And you'll hear a voice every time over the microphone. Don't play that Prince shit on my stage. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm sorry if I said that. But um, yeah, he's a. Uh, I'm sure he he acknowledges his greatness, but it might be a little too close to home for him, for him to be a huge advocate of Prince. Mm -hmm. Just because he feels like uh, he copped some of his influence and didn't give it credit, or no, I just think that he probably again I I can't speak for him, but I'm just from knowing him. I think that he was in the business before Prince was in the business or definitely around the same time with Dr. Buzzard's Savannah Band, uh, 78, 79-ish. And so I think that he is just not impressed. I just think he sees him as a guy who got really lucky and is just like all the other guys that he grew up around who were very good in their own way i just i don't know I, and uh, it's hard i don't want to get myself in any problems but you know it's imagine if there was someone doing what you're doing and they were good but it's not you and you're good too so it's kind of like a an unspoken appreciation, but we're not going to be putting up any posters of the other guy or something like that. It's some, something like that. You know, I know he knows that Prince is great. I also know that he liked me because of a lot of the things I got from Prince. So I, I always have that in the back of my head too. Like, oh, Mark, you think I'm so wonderful, but I stole that from Prince. So this, this, it's a bit of a weird one. You know, I know he loves Michael Jackson and he doesn't have that kind of feeling about Michael Jackson because he will freely say Michael's back, you know, as a performer or whatever. But uh, I've never heard him say anything like that about Prince. So interesting. It's weird. He calls me his favorite guitarist he's ever worked with and he thinks I'm the funkiest guy he's ever worked with he says it all the time but you know when I look in the mirror I know where I got that funk from and it wasn't from me so so it's, hmm, it's a little strange 
What was there a point? Was there a point where you felt like uh, you had kind of got it on guitar? You know, where you like felt you were confident and you could do what you wanted to do with it. Oh man, um, I still don't think I can do anything. I still think I'm nothing special because you know I've never studied music. I've never taken any lessons, even though I teach lessons and I, I've learned enough to pass on some of what I do. I'm very, I learned from those VHS tapes that I told you about, like just studying. And now of course we have YouTube, but when I wanted to know something, I, I, I couldn't see a better way of doing it than watching the person doing it and seeing where their hands are and what the facial expressions are that go with this note or that. Like I, I just, that's how I learned. So yeah, sorry about that Scott. It's a, can you ask me that question one more time? Because I was just going off on a little tangent. Oh, I was just asking you when you felt comfortable on the guitar uh, like that, you could kind of do what you wanted to do. It's a, it's, 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 it's an ongoing process, you know, because if someone called me today to do a, a jazz gig, I'm not going to really rock that too well because I'm not a jazzer guy. Like I don't sit around listening to Joe Pass and Wes Montgomery and George Benson and all these people. Like I, it's, it's nothing to me. I appreciate it, but it's just not what I've done. So knowing that, it's very hard for me to walk around pumping myself up like I'm the greatest this or that when I know that there's whole worlds of the instrument I couldn't really excel in. Like somebody hired me for a classical gig, for instance. I would just be like, you don't want me. Trust me, you don't want me. And uh, when you know that, you know, you'd be a fool to get too, too big a head about what you do. So what I do take credit for is being, like yourself, a serious student of what I love. So if somebody were to call me to do something Prince-ish. I could do that all day long in my sleep, one hand tied behind my back because I know exactly what that means. If someone asked me to do something sly-ish, I could do that. I know exactly what Freddie Stone's whole vibe was, what effects they were using, what da-da-da-da-da, all that. Um... But like, for instance, if somebody called me and says, hey, we want you to do some guitar like Andy Summers of the Police. Uh, okay, I know he used a lot of chorus effects on his guitar, but in terms of literally knowing it, no. So, you know, I'm a bit limited in what I do, but, but I'm hardcore with it, basically. <laughs> so so anything I like I learn 
And I learn it on a level where it's like you eat and sleep and breathe it and it's nothing else. So, so I have gotten good at certain things. Like I would say people call me primarily for funk ish things, maybe solos in a Hendrixy kind of wild rock solo mode. But most of the things I get called for, I need to bring my wah-wah pedal and and I'm channeling Sly a lot or Prince or any of that stuff, you know? My um yeah. Yes. My favorite band is Heatwave, by the way. Okay. So, yes. So I now know all of the Heatwave isms as well. I get to see them play live. The real heat wave? Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. No, you didn't. I did. Yeah. You didn't like, see Johnny like Wilder and Keith 70, Wilder. 79 ish. Yeah. Before the accident. Before yeah, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Santa Monica Civic, California. Oh, um, do you know how lucky you are? I know. They were super oh. energetic and they did a human pyramid as part of their act. You may not know this, but just recently on youtube i discovered some videos that i had been looking for for ages there's some videos up of live heat wave performances that i've seen just just very recently um where they're doing the pyramid and singing for real like it's it's mind blowing to me how good those people were just the, to me that's the definition of a type soul baby. it was, was kind of like they're like a funky glee club you know when i saw they were just all over <laughs> i understand there's one guy doing the robot and there's yeah. got a pyramid going on and someone's doing backflips <laughs> yeah they were bad they, that music touches me because i love the music i love the performance but I also have a very special place in my heart about Heatwave because before I knew anything about music at all, that was the music that touched me the most. What he did on Off the Wall, Rod Temperton, the songs he wrote for Michael, like those were the things that made me love music. So when I listen to Heatwave, I feel like I'm just, it's like connected to that stuff. It's this, when I think of their first like two albums or so, I think, wow, this is what Quincy was listening to, to go to the next place he wanted to go to. And so, um, yeah, I'm a yeah. fan, as I told you. I, that's really the, really who I am. Like if I find something I love, I just live it. I have everything you can buy with Heatwave. Like I've got everything they ever had on heat on eBay, all the songbooks, posters, just and that's how I learned from just I like a lot of people that know me say, Wow, it's almost like you're in Heatwave. You I could see you in the band. And that's really how I think about music. It's not studying music or theory or this or that. It's like I want that. And so I just go for that exact thing. You know? 
Yeah, well, they were unique and don't get as much, you know, spotlight as a lot of others. But, um, you know, don't they know have why. that international uh, lineup. and Don't know why. Know. That probably was what it was. I heard that they didn't really know what to do with them a lot in America because it's just what what category who's the face of this group even like what you know i heard they didn't even put their their faces on their first album in america because uh they didn't want to alienate anyone or something which is just ridiculous you know that's why i'm not in america excuse me there's a lot of that going on back then where they weren't showing certain acts because of that you know this is part of why i'm not in america because I just don't believe in all that kind of stuff, you know. I, I, mm, I yeah, it's it's a weird one. It's it's it's. it's mm. I like being in Europe much more. I find that everything is just less. We look over here. We look to America for craziness, like gun stories or things about like mass murderers or just people who are over the top the kardashians or any of this kind of thing this is this is american stuff so being over here now it's very interesting to me to be so untypical american i think and to actually see how americans are perceived through the eyes of the people around me now it's very it's a very interesting thing. Uh, I think a lot of people are fascinated with America. Like they all want to go to New York. They all want to go see LA and all these things and go where the stars are and stuff. But life is just so much different over here. So much more basic, just basic, you know? So, yes, well, I like, don't know, I like, lost like the a, question. But well, go like, ahead. I was saying, like I was saying, Mark, uh, kind of like me going from LA to North Carolina now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm fine with visiting LA, but I wouldn't want to live there again. And, uh, you know, I mean, I miss, you know, every musical person definitely goes through LA if they're going to be on a tour and that kind of thing. And not necessarily where I am now, but, uh, yeah, kind of seeing some of that, you know, from afar mm-hmm. rather than being immersed in it, um, is different. And, um, I have a friend who's like major record collector. He's in the UK and he's always like sending me like he's watching video clips of like, you know, people getting arrested, you know, the cop shows stuff in America. And he's like, you know, Americans. How do you do it, man? They're insane. You know, (laughs) how do you do it? Yeah, Yeah, for sure. I totally know. I, I, I mean, I, I'm a special case because I I've gotten it from all sides. Like a lot of my life is very Caucasian, like John Grossbard and his wife, hope my manager at the studio. Um, they basically, I was their son. So every weekend I'd be with them in their house in Connecticut and they'd be introducing me as their son. And when I moved, to Greenwich Village, we'd have dinner together every night and it would always be, oh, this is our son, Mark. So I I don't, I never was like choosing sides here. I'm all black guy or the all white guy. Just, I, I think of myself as very neutral because um, I just don't see things that way. Um, 
and being over here, oh God, I'm getting lost again on what I'm saying. But uh, yeah, being over here is, is very interesting. Just, it's weird. It's strange. Yeah, and back in America, people don't consider me much of a typical black gentleman. And over here, they all see me as a black American person. <laughs> but they're like, why? Why why don't you have a gun? Why aren't you a criminal and in, into hip hop? It's like, well, I wasn't into that back home either. You know, so it's it's definitely well, that, that's good you're helping, you know, break those stereotypes that they may have over there. Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure, for sure. Definitely. But as you were saying about LA, like for New York for me, I I think about shopping. When I think of New York, I think, wow, it's a place you can get anything pretty much you want. 24-7, yeah. Yes. And where I live right now, as I told you, the nearest shop is four miles away. So there's there's a lot of times I go without groceries because I just can't make it to the shop. And when I think about New York, with everything on your doorstep, deliverable, practically, <laughs> it's just like, Wow. I sure miss that. I miss people don't know how how good they have it in big cities sometimes, you know? You can't just hop on your Uber app and get, you know, food delivered to your doorstep. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> I used to have this menu book in New York City with like five hundred menus of every great type of food you can fifteen minutes they'll be at your door. I didn't even know any people who cooked in New York City. Everyone, that's how you live. So it, it's, it was an experience, you know? So, Mark, getting back to the music, um, how did your sessions, you know, stuff start to progress and develop and, you know, working with other folks? Well, a lot of that came through the studio, Planet Sound. Uh, a lot of... Uh, my credits were just people recording albums there and they need a vocalist, they need a guitarist, a bass player, keyboard, whatever they need, I could fill in. So I would say it started at the studio, that studio. But then there was a period where John and I, my manager, we, we started going our separate ways a bit. And that's just because I was more interested in doing my own music rather than being produced. And because I lived with the engineer, we were roommates, I could go to the studio all the time, weekends, late nights. So I was starting to, to build up this body of work that was independent of whatever I was doing as a artist being produced by John. And that started getting a lot of notice from people in the funk world of New York at the time. There was a company called Giant Step run by a fellow named Morris Bernstein. And uh, I think he had a partner named Jonathan as well. But Giant Step was the funkiest thing going on in New York. Like they would put on shows and uh, they would have everyone. Like, I think their motto was dedicated to the preservation of funk. And so they would have Bootsy 
George Clinton, whomever, years later, when Shuggy Otis, uh, when they re-released his uh, information, Inspiration Information album in 2001, if you're familiar with that. Um, I think it was released on uh, David Byrne's label, Luwaka Bop. And uh, Giant Step were the people who were at the helm of that whole thing. They they were the liaison between finding Shuggy, getting him signed to this deal, and promoting the record. They were a promotion company as well. So I started meeting a lot of people that were affiliated with Giant Step. And uh, primarily, uh, primarily, it was this group called Groove Collective, which um, is kind of like a, a acid jazz, jazz funk, Jamiroquai-ish band without the lead singer. So, you know, that was the thing to do in New York City. Uh, one of my closest, dearest friends, Jonathan Marin, who I think is one of the best bass players in the world as well, was in that band. So I used to go see them. And uh, sometimes they would ask me to come sit in with them. And so I just kind of got myself very plugged into the funk, jazz funk scene in New York. Giant Step also had a nightclub every Thursday night where you could see anyone in there performing. Uh, Morris is a, the guy running Giant Step is a British person from Manchester. So he would bring over people like Jamiroquai when they were just starting out. He's like, oh, these guys are gonna be amazing. Or he'd bring, I don't know if you're familiar with this soul singer named Omar from the UK. Mm -mm. Don't know if you know him. Um, he's good. Stevie acknowledged him as like one of the guys. You should check out. He has an album called Music. I think you would like it. Omar. Okay. But um, he would come over and do shows in New York that Giant Step were promoting. And uh, from that, I just started, I guess my music started being heard more. And people started asking me to play on their things. And I think a lot of musicians were impressed with how much uh, studio etiquette I had. Like I knew how to work in a studio. I, I lived in the studio every day, pretty much. So I just had a real understanding about how to make records and record and all that stuff. So people started hiring me and um, the first people were people affiliated with Giant Step, which grew collective and different records like that. But then that started branching out to a lot of those guys would call me to do other sessions they were doing. So like maybe one of those guys would be working with uh, little Louis Vega um, producer and his partner. Um, what's his partner's name? Oh, God. <laughs> Excuse me. Little Louis Vega and uh, Kenny Dope, excuse me. Kenny Dope is his name. So I started doing a lot of sessions for them. And they kept calling me. And from like that one connection 
the meeting little Louis Vega and Kenny Dope, Masters at Work was their name as a production team. Suddenly you find out, hey, Janet Jackson's coming in town and we're doing a remix and we want you on it. Okay, great. And we're putting together an album called New Yorican Soul and we're going to get George Benson and we're going to get Tito Puente and we're going to get all these luminaries that to do this live New York funk jazz album. Okay, great. Next thing you know, you're in the studio cutting tracks on a George Benson track or, you know, the tour comes up and of course you're the guy. So now you're on tour backing up George Benson or Tito Puente, things I never could imagine I would do. They just started falling in my lap. And uh, as it so often is, once you get a little name, it attracts people. So, you know, the affiliations. The, oh, yeah, that guy's on this record. He's great. He's, he's uh, before you know it, I was just getting booked all the time. And it, it's very funny to me being so far away from all that now. When very little comes in, I don't have any friends here or anything like that. I, I I live in this country to be near my children. But when I was in New York and in the scene, it just is like coming to you all the time. Like my friend Jonathan, the bass player I told you from Group Collective, he calls me up one day and he's just like, Mark, I played some song that you sung the vocal on something of his that I did in the studio for some people at this new show that's being made called Sex in the City. And they said they kind of want stuff with this vibe for like background music, but they want you in it too. Cool. So we cut a bunch of stuff. Sex in the City comes out. It's this huge hit. I hear my music on there the first two seasons. I never auditioned for that. I never called anyone to try to get that. It just, sometimes when you're in it, like even with you, you know, like how I'm sure you must meet lots of people because you're out there and they see you and they hear about you and things fall in your lap that you never would have worked for or something, you know? So a lot of it was that with me. Hmm? Other people, for instance, dance producers who want to be like the top guys. So they'll gladly hire whoever they use. So now you got a bunch of wannabe little Louis Vegas that are calling you up. So it was just, I was on a roll at that time. Mm -hmm. well, how'd you feel about, uh, you know, playing more sort of up-tempo and clubby kind of stuff after coming from, you know, more of the funk and soul and rock background? Oh, wow. Well, funny, funnily enough, the era we're talking about, I would say, is mid to late 90s, uh, 95 to 97, pretty much. A lot of stuff was going on. After that, I started getting my own record deals and doing my own things. But mid to late 90s, the thing was, I was getting hired so much because everybody was into funk. 
So, yes, they're doing dance music, but in the same way Delight was doing it. Like, with Groove is in the heart, so they'll go get Bootsy because they want to be funky. Even though the beat is boom, 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 boom. They still want wah-wahs and all the the bits that you need to be funky, maybe just not funky in the way that we know it to be. So I was getting hired because I looked funky. I wore 70s clothes. I I was it, if that's what you were you into. brought the vibe, yeah. I would come down the street and it's like Fred Williamson in Black Caesar walking down the street with the hat the whole thing that's how i was all the time so so i got a lot of things just because of that people are like we want him just sometimes for the look like i would have jobs with there was a japanese artist named toshi kabuda he had he was huge in japan like michael jackson level but he made an r&b album around that time and uh it was a big deal to his Japanese fans. I'm going to New York to make this R&B record. And he wanted funky looking New Yorkers. He himself got an Afro and I was like his sidekick. You know, I didn't have any affiliation with him or his music so much. I don't even think he cared if I played the guitar. It was just, you look cool. You're like a real funky black American. <laughs> that was me. So a lot of the things I got came from that. Like, for instance, um, there's this group called the Bucketheads that had a hit song um, called The Bomb. And in the video, they got like an actor with an Afro wig to have a whole 70s thing. But when they actually wanted to, when the record became a hit, it was just like, a, it wasn't a band. It was just put together by this guy, Kenny Dope, um, Lil Louis Vega's partner. So he's like, hey, Mark, you got the look. Why don't you be the front man for this project? Okay. Next thing you know, I spent like a year touring MTV beach house tours all over the world, singing this dance song uh miming this dance song i had no connection to it like a millie vanilli kind of thing yeah exactly it literally it's a very and i've actually worked with the producer frank farian that was behind all that like me and kid creole believe it or not as crazy as it sounds we actually went and did a project at his house with this guy named Taco, if you remember him, putting on the Ritz. On the Ritz yeah. So I have a picture of me, Kid Creole, Frank, and Taco in the <laughs> studio. <laughs> so again, you see, all these things come together. I didn't, a lot of things, It a lot of this is who you know and, and what circles you're in, you know? Because now I live on a farm in the middle of nowhere and my phone doesn't ring like that because I'm just not, I'm not in it at the moment, you know? 
And, and so at some point you got signed uh, to a, a Jay-Z uh, records deal, right? Well, um, yes, definitely. What happened is I was doing a lot of work around New York and well, it's kind of a long story. I don't know how much you want me to get into, but I was doing a lot of work with D'Angelo's manager at the time. His name was Dominic Trenair. He's uh, deceased now. Rest in peace to him. But he was he was interested in working with me as an artist, but there was a conflict between what he was doing with D'Angelo and working with me. I don't think D'Angelo was too up for another very Prince-influenced guy of the same age-ish uh, being someone that his manager was hyped up about. And as well as the fact that D'Angelo was from Virginia and he wasn't a New Yorker guy. Whereas I was in the scene, I knew everybody, everybody knew me. I was in many ways what they were trying to turn D'Angelo into. When they brought him to New York and got him a personal trainer and got him all looking like he looked in his voodoo era, I was in many ways, someone they were pointing to is like, you should be more like Mark. Mark is, you know. And um, so I think that caused a lot of problems in the D'Angelo camp. So his manager wanted to work with me, but maybe not as an artist-manager relationship. So what he did is he hooked me up with some of the other people he was working with just to stay in the fold but you know not quite d'angelo so i started working with mark ronson who he hooked me up with and nika costa was the next one he's like hey i got this girl from australia and uh She's coming to New York and she's into funk and you guys need to get together and work on some stuff. Sure. So she came to my house. We started working, writing, making demos. And uh, eventually her album came out. And it did really well. Uh, uh, everybody's got their something. I think it was 2001 or so. And uh, she started getting a lot of notoriety and people around New York were like, oh my God, I saw you all last summer with this girl with the red hair. And now she's like on MTV. And it was a big deal, kind of. Like she literally was in my apartment every single day for almost six months. We were going around at night. I was taking her to Giant Step, all those places, introducing her to all of my connections. I even put a band together for her at that time. Um, so her record comes out. 
There's a lot of buzz going around New York about it. And she did her debut show in New York, like her actual first concerts, if you will, as Nika Costa promoting this album. So I went to the concert in the VIP area. I saw Mark Ronson and he happened to be standing next to Damon Dash, if you're familiar with him. He was Jay-Z's partner. Yeah. Right. They were running Rockefeller Records together with a guy named Biggs. So Damon was a fan of Mika Costa. And Mark is like, this guy is Jimi Hendrix. You need to hook up with him. He's the guy who did this music. And so he was just like, are you signed to anyone? I said, no. He's like, all right, gave me a card. said, come to my office tomorrow. So I went up to his office. I played him some of my demos. Within about 20, 30 minutes, he just asked me if I have a lawyer. I said, yes. Tell him I'd like to make a deal. And so I, we started making a record deal for me, like instantly. And it was based off of the fact that he liked Nika Costa's music. And he wanted to, they wanted to make a new division of Rockefeller Records that was going to call be called Rock Music. And uh, I was supposed to be the first artist there. So uh, did I answer your question? Yes, yeah. Jay-Z. That's how I got with Jay-Z and all that. Was it through that project that you also met... Um, uh you know, Questlove for the first time too. and No, but it is all connected in a way. Um, it is all connected, actually. This manager, Dominic Trenier, he was very plugged in to the everything. And I would say he was like, him and Puff Daddy were neck and neck in terms of the New York young happening with their finger on the pulse, sort of A&R type guys. Mo Mo moguls, yeah. Moguls, yes. Yeah. He wasn't quite at mogul status yet, but he had a lot of the things going, you know? So you go to his apartment and it's just like models lying all around and every, every empty space, every couch in the bed, he'd have various models and it's just a regular afternoon for him. So not my scene at all, but, you know, he was trying to be P. Diddy. Um, thank thankfully, he didn't, he didn't succeed because P. Diddy's in a lot of trouble right now. But anyway, I'm, digress <laughs> I'm digressing. But, um, yeah, so I, uh, that guy, Dominic, who was also, I believe, managing mark ronson at the time along with d'angelo like um he just was trying to get me in there somehow however he could get me in his realm without it crossing over into d'angelo's project he was trying to get me there so he there was times where he was trying to make d'angelo and i be friends so like, he just felt we were very similar. 
he felt we both were Prince fanatics and we both played instruments and wanted to be stars, I guess. So I remember one day he brought him over to my house. That didn't go well at all. Uh, I think he asked me to play some Curtis Mayfield song, which I had never heard before. And he just basically was like, let's get out of here, man, without much harsher words than that. But F this, let's go. And so that, I was like, that was D'Angelo you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, D'Angelo. I was like, what just happened? Like, who walks in your house and says, yo, play this song? And if you don't know it, it's just like, let's get the out of here. Like, I was like, totally like, what just happened? So I thought that was the end of D'Angelo's situation. But then maybe about six months later, I was walking down 8th Street in Greenwich Village where um, Jimi Hendrix has his studio, Electric Lady. Yeah, Electric Lady Studios. And so I was walking past just a regular Saturday afternoon out shopping. And I hear, yo, Mark, yo, Mark. So I turn around and it's D'Angelo popping his head out of Electric Lady Studios. And he's just like, come on, come down. So I came down. He plays me many cuts from the Voodoo album. Uh, I was totally blown away. I was like, man, this dude's vocals are something else, you know? And uh, we had a jam. We played uh, some Parliament Funkadelic songs. Um, I want to go back and get more the funky stuff. We were jamming on that for a long time. And then he's just told his engineer, who I also knew his engineer, um, Russ Elevato. He's like, put up a tape. He put up a tape with the song Chicken Grease on it. I played guitar, never got any credit. I'm, I won't really go into it any more than that, but whether he used it or part of it, I can't speculate because what I hear on the record is the same thing I did. So, but it's a, it's a touchy subject. I never got any credit, it, credit for it. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.